Right. I, I don't. I don't remember the, the comment in, in particular, but I mean, what the brother was saying was that you know, when people, when it comes to sin, they they normally like to deflect the blame of the sin by attributing to Allah's decree, saying, "Oh, well, we were, it was decreed upon this, so as if they were compelled upon that sin." But when it comes to their good deeds, uh, people typically like to take you know full responsibility for some good that they do. And so instead of, you know, they were consistent, they would say, I was compelled to do the good deed, and so I don't deserve any reward for it, but rather they'll, they'll make it seem that they did the good deed without even Allah's assistance to them. And so this is, um, you know, obviously this is a, a, a sign of their um, contradiction. In the, same, in the same way that a person who argues and tries to deflect blame for his sin uh, by latching onto Allah's decree, in the same way, um, when it comes to worldly matters, you'll find him that typically he will not hold that position. And if he's ill, he will try to use every means in order to make, he was told that he has some sort of, you know, terminal disease. I mean, he'll try every means to find a cure in order to extend his life. I mean, he doesn't say, well, it's a lot harder that I have this disease, and so if I'm going to die, I might as well just die. But rather, no, he'll, you know, strive as much as in order to continue living. So, here he's, he doesn't just submit to the decree. So why is it when it comes to his sinfulness to see, say, well, it's just a decree? And so forth. Again, the contradiction. So those are, I mean, that was a good comment from the brother, uh, and that just shows us that the importance of, when it comes to the issue of qadr, that we adopt the correct creed so that our beliefs are you know, consistent with not only with the revelation, but also consistent with, you know, reason that we don't seem that we are contradictory people. Um, now, the next section which we'd like to discuss now is regarding the nature of evil. Yes, brother. Well, uh, the brother's asking, what is the standing of the, uh, what, I mean, what do we understand concerning the nature of freedom of will? Obviously, you know, we have a choice. I mean, one cannot deny that we have a choice to do the deed we want to do. But the point is, is that what we will, what we choose to do, I don't know if you were here, if you were here yesterday, but what we choose to do, what we will, does not step out of what Allah wills for us. Um, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in, at the conclusion of Surah Al-Takwir, for those amongst you who desire to be upright. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala affirms that each one of us can desire to be upright. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and none of you will desire that unless Allah desires that. He is Rabbul Alameen, the Lord of all worlds. So, in other words, when one does a good deed, or when one does an evil deed, in fact, when one does any sort of action, or refrains from doing an action, anything that occurs in the heavens and the earth, from the actions of human beings, or from 
other than human beings. It's within Allah's, the framework of Allah's will. In the sense that had Allah did not will that to occur, it would have never occurred. And had He not willed it, uh, it would have not occurred, as I just said. So, uh, but because He willed it, it did occur. So, when you come to the issue of the free... I'll let you finish out. I'll let you uh, make your comment. So when you come to the issue of the freedom of will, when those people say that human beings are like a feather in the wind, uh, the jebriya, the determinist, they themselves are saying something which each one of us recognize that not to be true. I mean, each one of us recognizes that he has a will and he does actions upon his choice. I mean, I can, now I desire to stand, so I, I stand, I desire to sit, I, I, I sit. But the point is, is that my standing and sitting is because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has willed that. Had Allah not willed it and created that action, it would have not occurred. Now, as far as the Mu'tazila who say that a person has free will, their argument is that their, uh, uh, our will precedes Allah's will. In other words, we do things and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala might have not necessarily willed it. So as if we are, you know, actors in the universe against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And, and that's their fault. Their fault is not that they, fact that they said that human beings had a will. That's, that's true. But their fault is, is that they said that Allah's will follows the will of human beings. So we could do something and Allah does not want us to do it. You see? In the sense that, in the sense that we, our will proceeds or overtakes Allah's will. Allah might not love us to do that act. In other words, if somebody does an act of sin, somebody does an act of disbelief, Allah does not love that act. And one must distinguish between what Allah loves and what Allah wills. But Allah has permitted it. Because had He not permitted it, it would have not occurred. That interpretation, I mean, has still in it has some some problems because the fact that even that you will to do right, but even that the fact that you you know that you have the the will and the desire to do that action even before it proceeds from you. In other words, the 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 motive, what we'd call in English, the motive to do an action, right? Had Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not willed and not permitted for you to have the motivation to do the action, even before the action proceeds from you, then you would have never had the motivation to do that action. And so even, even the, the heart seeking to do something before the action actually proceeds from the human being, had Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not allowed for that heart to seek that and had Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not created that intention in the human being then that would have never proceeded let alone what proceeds thereafter in terms of the conclusion of that act to which you were referred to did the conclusion of the act like you shot you know somebody and so therefore you know did that bullet kill that individual or not I mean, that, that's, that's true I mean th- th- what you said there is, is absolutely correct that in terms of you do an action and does that action come to its 
you know, fulfill its aim? Does it come to its fruition? Does it come to its completion? You know, had Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't allow that, then it will not come to its fruition. But, but more fundamental than that is that the actual willing, the actual motivation that, that precedes the human being, and the actual act which occurs on the limb, right, those in themselves are something which Allah knew about before it occurred, something which He wrote in the preserved tablet, something which He willed its existence, and something which He created when, and so therefore took part. Alright, uh, I, I think that's at least we... Yeah, I, I mean, I can realize it's very uh, any, uh, wide issue, and I could see there's a bunch of questions have been addressed as well. Okay. And I hope that through what you have just said in the past 10, 15 minutes, have it clarified, and we don't, we don't need to refer to these questions okay. particularly, inshallah. Inshallah. So, so now we want to talk about the issue of faith. So we're in paragraph 56 of our creed that we're studying. So... Ibn Qudama says that Iman, faith, consists of words uttered by the tongue, deeds performed by the limbs, and beliefs held by the heart. So therefore, you know, Iman, according to the beliefs of the main body of Muslims, Ahl Sunnah, is something which has three parts to it. Iman is something which is a belief in the heart. Iman is something which is a statement by the tongue and Iman is something which is an action done by the limbs and furthermore Iman increases with acts of obedience and decreases with acts of disobedience so that's you know paragraph paragraph 56 I mean you can circle it or underline it or put a little asterisk next to it I mean that's a very important principle which we should memorize and understand now, what do we mean by that, you know, Iman is beliefs held by the heart and deeds performed by the limbs and words uttered by the tongue? Well, uh, first of all, uh, an example of a belief held by the heart, of course, is like to believe in Allah's angels. And also entering into that would be actions in the heart. For instance, loving of Allah that's something in, in the heart it's rooted in the heart uh, fearing Allah hoping for Allah's mercy these are all acts these are all this is all part of Iman shyness being modest as the Prophet ﷺ said you know that Al-Hayat you know, which we might translate as modesty or shyness is a is a branch of Iman and Al-Hayat you know or modesty or shyness is something which is rooted in the heart um so those are examples. So believing in Allah, believing in His angels, loving Allah, loving the Prophet these are all actions in the heart. These are now. Likewise, there are statements done by the tongue which are part of Iman. To say La ilaha Allah. To say SubhanAllah, to say Alhamdulillah, you know, to, re- to remember Allah. To recite the Quran to announce the adhan these are all statements done by the tongue which are part of iman part of faith and likewise deeds done by the limbs 
from prayer, from Bahara, as the Prophet said, that a Bahara is Shatrul Iman, that purity is half of Iman. Even though in the sense Iman here refers to Salah, but it's still, I mean, it's part of Iman. Um, zakah, giving Zakah, fasting, waging jihad, performing Hajj. These are all acts done by the limbs, uh, by the body parts, and yet it's part of Iman. So, to say that Iman is equivalent to the word belief, as sometimes we'll say, is incorrect. Because it gives the notion, when you say that Iman is belief, you know, it gives the notion that Iman is just something in the heart. Like, I believe in Allah, I believe in the, in the angels, and so forth. But rather, Iman is a much more wider meaning. And when Muslims started to reduce the notion of Iman just to beliefs alone, then they became negligent with deeds. See, because if you think that Iman, or if you hold that Iman is just beliefs, and then you find in your heart that you believe, for instance, in Allah and His angels and the scriptures and the messengers, then the importance of the outer actions that are done by the body are reduced because you feel well I have Iman so therefore that's what's required of me and so you know, the other actions don't become as important but when you understand that really Iman you know for you to be a mu'min for you to be a what we would say in English to be a believer or from the faithful you know it requires from you not just to hold beliefs in your heart but it also requires for you to say things by the tongue, it also requires for you to do deeds by the limbs, then the importance of statements and actions become much greater. So it's very important that we correct this misnotion that many Muslims have, uh, first we correct amongst ourselves and then amongst those we know, that Iman is just solely something in the heart, but rather Iman is something in the heart, upon the tongue, and performed by the limbs. Moreover, Iman increases with acts of obedience and decreases with acts of disobedience. So people in Iman are not of the same level. Some people have stronger Iman than others. And so the stronger your Iman, the closer you are to Allah and the more deserving you are of paradise and the greater reward you'll have in the hereafter. How, how does that Iman increase and decrease? Well, acts of obedience to Allah increases it. And acts of disobedience to Allah decrease Iman. So when you do an act, a good deed, you do a righteous action, you go to the masjid and you pray, Salat al-Zuhr, your Iman increases. And you've drawn closer to Allah. When you do a sin, your Iman decreases. And we continuously, as we do good deeds and as we sin, our iman is continuously fluctuating. And that's why we ourselves, I mean, you, you feel that. Sometimes you feel close to Allah, Azawajal. And sometimes you, because of your sins you feel alienated. And so therefore, it's a struggle that we must always draw closer to Allah, Azawajal, by continuously doing good deeds. Now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, as, as Ibn Qudama quotes in the 57th paragraph, وَمَا أُمِرُوا إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُ اللَّهَ 
مخلصين له دينا حنفاء ويقيم الصلاة ويؤتوا الزكاة وذلك الدين القيمة Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says they were commanded only to worship Allah so the people of the scriptures and this is reference of, of the people of the scriptures Ahlul Kitab they were commanded to worship Allah making their religion his sincerely in other words Tawheed not having shirk they are men of they are Hunafa which is translated here men of pure faith but means that they do not commit shirk and they perform the prayer and they pay the zakah and that is the true religion so here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you know, made the true religion consisting of what? Worshipping Allah, making the prayer, and paying zakah. So it shows that here, I mean, Ibn Qudamah, he brought this example because he wants to show that actions are part of faith, iman. So, you know, he quoted an ayah to show that because they were commanded to worship Allah and to pay uh, the zakah, I mean, to, to perform the prayer and to pay the zakah. And then Allah says, That is the true religion. Okay? So if that is the true religion, and it consists of worship and prayer and zakah, which are all things which are done by the limbs, that shows that this is part of iman then. That's why he brought it. And that, then in, in, in uh, uh, paragraph 58, he quotes the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where the Prophet ﷺ said that al-iman that faith consists of some 70 odd branches and that the highest branch of iman is the testimony that there is none worthy of worship but Allah and the lowest is to remove something harmful from the road so here they, they, uh, the Prophet ﷺ described that Iman has over 70 branches. The highest branch is to say La ilaha Allah. That's a statement. The lowest branch is to remove something harmful from the road. That's an action. So here he's proving that Iman is more than just beliefs in the heart, but here he's showing that actions are from Iman, and likewise deeds are from Iman. And then he quotes two ayat from the Quran. Uh, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, says لِيَزْدَادُوا إِيمَانًا مَعَ إِيمَانِهِمْ that, that so that they may increase faith they may increase their iman with the iman they have and وَزَادَتْهُمْ إِيمَانًا that it increased them in iman so therefore it shows that iman increases because Allah refers to the increase of iman so iman is something therefore which increases and likewise the Prophet sallallahu said that whoever says La ilaha Allah and in his heart he has the weight of Iman equivalent to a wheat grain equivalent to a mustard seed equivalent to a small ant he will eventually come out of the hellfire so the Prophet ﷺ said that you know he says that if you have Iman equal to a wheat grain to a mustard seed or to small ant so each of those three matters are different in weight. Uh, you know, a wheat grain weighs more than a mustard seed, which weighs more than a small ant. So here, the Prophet ﷺ, you know, by indication, by implication, right, that these three groups of people, their their iman differs, and so, you know, one group is better than the other group, even though they have very little iman. And yet, whoever has even that small amount of iman and says that Allah will eventually leave the hellfire. Now, it's important to understand. Uh, these following couple of principles which um, 
were not uh, mentioned by Ibn Qudama uh, specifically in the uh, text, but uh, it's important that we, you know, go through them. The first is is that you know the religion, the deen, um, is consists of three parts, as mentioned in the hadith of Jibril, which we discussed, I guess, in part yesterday. When Jibril came to the Prophet ﷺ and asked him those questions, he asked him, "What is Islam? What is Iman? What is Ihsan?" And then in the end of the hadith the Prophet ﷺ identifies who was the questioner to his companions and said that was Jibreel who came to teach you your deen who came to teach you your deen so the deen then therefore consists of these three levels Islam Iman and Ihsan and you can think of them as three circles if you're to draw, I don't have a board, but if you're to draw a large circle and you write in it Islam, and then within that large circle, draw another circle and write Iman, and within that second circle, draw a third circle and write Ihsan. So when a person, yes, Yes, okay. You can draw a big circle and you write in that big circle the word Islam. I-S-L-A-M. And then draw another circle and write the word Iman. I-M-A-N. It's just because of my American accent. I want to make sure everybody understands me. That's all. That's all. <laughs> and then draw a, th- a third circle and write the word Ihsan. I-H-S-A-N so we have three circles now right? okay so now when you say the testimony of faith when a person says La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah he enters into that first circle he enters into that first circle so now you're in that first circle if when saying that statement you actually believe in that statement then you have Iman so you enter into that second circle the circle of Iman now Iman increases and decreases and it has branches 70 branches so if you were to complete the branches of Iman to the point where you worship Allah as you see Him. For even though you do not see Allah, He sees you. So in other words, I mean, you're, you're, when you come to your worship, I mean, you, you sense that Allah is watching you and seeing you and so forth. So whatever you do, you make sure that it's within compliance to His commands and avoiding His prohibitions. Then you enter into the third circle called Ihsan. So everybody who has Ihsan everybody who's a muhsin we'd say in Arabic is a mu'min 
And everybody who's a mu'min is also a Muslim. But not everybody who's a Muslim is a mu'min. And not everybody who's a mu'min is a muhsin. Because Islam, in this sense, is just the outward profession. And so, a hypocrite, who, let's say, in a Muslim country, who's concerned that, you know, well, if he doesn't come to the masjid, if he's not seen there, if he doesn't publicly say that he, he's a Muslim, he'll be ostracized by the society. He'll, you know, he won't be able to marry who he wants to marry, for instance, okay? Uh, he you know, might lose his position. Or he might be trying to harm the Muslim, so he pretends that he's a Muslim, you know. I mean, so, but outwardly, we can't tell the difference. I mean, in the time of the Prophet wasallam, I mean, the, the hypocrites, they, Allah, as Allah tells us in the Quran, they testify that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. They pray, but they pray with laziness, you know. They even went out and they would wage jihad with the Prophet they would even give charity okay uh, but they were stingy so you know so they, they in order to protect themselves the hypocrites they did the outward acts of the Muslims I mean so they were you know they would come to the masjid they would pray they would you know I mean Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Sarud who was the leader of the hypocrites would after each Jum'ah khutbah in Medina initially he would stand up and you know encourage the people to follow the Prophet and so forth and yet he was the leader of the hypocrites you know so so this outward so outwardly we, we judge people I mean in this world we judge people by their outward outwardly profession I mean somebody says that Allah we say he's a Muslim you know what's in his heart what his true nature is only Allah knows we don't delve into that I mean unless he exposes to us his true nature and tells us well I really don't believe I'm you know really a closet Christian and I've you know, adopted Islam in order to sort of intermingle between the Muslims so I can then, you know, do missionary work amongst them. I mean, unless he comes out and he says something like that, right? I mean, you don't know what his true nature is. To us, he seems that he's a Muslim, so we say he's a Muslim. Now, if he has Iman in his heart, then he's a Mu'min. But in Iman is degree, so if you complete Iman, you become a Muhsin. Alright? There are things, though, when you enter that first circle of Islam, you know, which can, which can pull you out which can pull you out of that circle. And those are what is known as, you know, the nawaqad islam the things which nullify Islam. Like committing shirk. Like insulting the Prophet uh, Like uh, doing an act of sorcery. Like making fun of the religion. I mean, these matters, which matters of apostasy, uh, even if you say the testimony of faith, if you do one of these acts, then you've stepped out of that big circle of Islam and you're now considered an apostate. And according to Islamic law, when a person commits apostasy, he's given a chance to repent, and if he doesn't repent, he's executed. So, but the point is, is that, I mean, we have to understand the difference between Islam and Iman and Ihsan. Now, the other principle, which is important for us to understand, is that and this is something which is we, we need to work towards. I mean, it's, it's not just a principle of belief, but it's a principle of conduct. That it's important for us to know what are these branches of Iman. Okay? And there is a book uh, which has been translated to English, and it's, it, the translation is not bad, although the footnotes in it are very, very bad. So, 
if I, if I suggest a book, I mean, don't read the footnotes, okay? <laughs> so if I, can, if I can do that. And that's The Branches of Faith by, by Al-Bayhaqi. Um, uh, that book, you know, which, I, which I'm sure I think is printed here in the United Kingdom, so I'm sure it should be available, readily available. But the, but the footnotes are, are very bad. But um, because the person who translated the book seems is, is Sufi or, you know, has, you know, some Sufi inclinations. Uh, but but it's important at least you know I mean even if somebody was just to um, even if someone was just to um, look at the table of contents of that book, all right. So you know what the branches of faith are, all right. Then you can sort of look at yourself and say you know have I achieved these branches of faith? You know where do I stand? I mean you know for instance it says the, the first branch you'll say is belief in a law. You know, and then it'll mention like love of Allah, it'll mention fear of Allah, and you know, one can look and says, so he understands what is iman that he's to try to fulfill in his life. Okay, uh, that's very important. You know, so I don't know in in the book uh, the path to paradise. Is it mentioned in the book the path to paradise? The, the book by Jim Volume Two is that branches of you know what book I'm talking about, right? The path to paradise. No. Anyway, and there's another book called The Path to Paradise, which has, I think in it, it has a section of good deeds or major sins or uh, something like that. And that's also very useful to have. Maybe we can encourage uh, the brothers of Monteda to uh, stock it in their bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> huh? I don't know. Is it there? Yeah, two volumes, right? Is there upstairs? It's available, right? Well, anyway, that that book, the, the Path of Paradise. I know that in one of the sections it has, for instance, like the major sins. Oh, that's Muhammad Tahlawi's. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, we have. Okay. And then there's another one which has it also maybe has a section of some good deeds, right? Does it have that section in there, or am I imagining something? Huh? Huh? Imagining? Okay. So uh, anyway, so but the point is, it it has a section of major sins. At least we're certain of that. So you know, for a person to read that and to make sure he doesn't follow those major sins, just like a person reads about the branches of faith and tries to achieve them, then this is you know something which is important that we need to strive to. So, you know, iman is something which we need to work on. And the earlier earlier Muslims used to say, you know, alamna iman, thumma alamna Quran, fizidna iman, and we 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 learnt iman, and then we learnt the Quran, so we increased in iman. So to learn iman, I mean, one has to learn, you know, what are, you know, what is it that Allah is pleased with? You know, what is it that Allah hates? And how can I then, you know, work to do that which Allah finds pleasing and leave that which Allah hates and dislikes? Uh, this is something which is very important. I mean, obviously, if a person wants to please Allah and is, is unaware of what are the good deeds that Allah loves, what is iman, or and he or he wants to avoid Allah's anger and he doesn't know. What is it that Allah dislikes? What is it that Allah hates? How can He go about doing good deeds and leaving, you know, bad deeds? So it's very important that we uh, work uh, toward uh, that. Um, the other issue is that uh, we want to remember, uh, and the, the author brings up to this later in the book, but it's, it's it's okay if we just talk about it now for a few minutes, and then we'll take the questions that when it comes to the issue of Iman and Islam and Ihsan we have to be very careful and not kick someone out of one of these circles upon our own I mean to say that somebody is not a Muslim is a very serious thing 
to say that somebody is not a mu'min, you know, is, is a very serious thing. Okay, Th- these matters are matters which are best that, you know, as youth we do not delve into. I mean, it's important for us to know what constitutes Islam, what constitutes Iman, what constitutes Ihsan, and to strive towards achieving that. But for us to become judgmental and say that, you know, this person is a Muslim, this person is not a Muslim, this is something which is best for us to avoid. Alright? Or say this person is a person of Sunnah or a person of Bid'ah, or this person is pious or he's impious. And this is something which is best for us to avoid. Uh, we should know what is Iman, we should know what uh, are the good deeds, we should know what are the major sins to avoid them, we should know uh, what is uh, Kufr so that we do not, you know, fall I mean, into it. I mean, I'm not suggesting that we don't say that a Christian is a Kafir, we don't say that a Jew is a Kafir. I mean, this is something which you have to say because Allah has said in His book that they are amongst the unbelievers. But what I am saying is that to say that a Muslim has left the religion has become an apostate. Or to say that a Muslim has, you know, become a fasiq. Or a Muslim has become uh, no longer from the practitioners of the sunnah. He's a person of bid'ah. This is something which is, I mean, best left uh, alone and left to those people who are, you know, people of knowledge and who, who, who can judge these matters rather than for us as youth to judge them. The same system, inshallah, for the questions. Written questions are uh, preferred, and we'll take those. If they aren't, then we will encourage you to directly ask Sheikh. This question is uh, from brother. Uh, from from reference 60, uh, from the booklet, Yarhamukallah, where the the messenger of Sallam said, and uh, quote unquote. Uh, did not the kalima mean a great deal more to the people at the time of the Prophet Muhammad as at that time uh, of Muhammad it was very difficult to say the kalima as they knew exactly what it meant whereas today the words la ilaha illallah is said by any Muslims okay. uh, this is a good comment uh, yes, obviously the people during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, among Muslims and non-Muslims understood better in many cases what the testimony La ilaha Allah meant and what it was its implications by saying this testimony. And that's why the unbelievers when they rejected to say, when they refused to say it or when they refused to say it they, they did so knowingly that and they knew its implications that's why they refused to say it and for instance they said you know has he now made that all those who he worship should only become one object of worship that is something which is strange indeed but today now you find Muslims who say la ilaha Allah and yet at the same time they will worship others with Allah. They will not. They don't understand that by them saying that Allah, they have negated the worship of anyone else besides Allah. So, in that point, it's true. But if if the brother, or the I guess the brother who wrote this question, is trying to say that, so therefore this hadith is applicable only to those in the time of the Prophet sallallahu then that's not true. The hadith is general. The Prophet sallallahu said, "Men qala." whoever says he didn't say he who says during my time or in this generation or only those Muslims who say but whoever says la ilaha Allah 
Now, obviously, to say La ilaha illallah, I mean, when the Prophet ﷺ said, Man qala la ilaha illallah, he didn't just mean a verbal profession without something in the heart. So, the, by implication, the other conditions or stipulations for La ilaha illallah were there. Inshallah, I'll come to you. Uh, for instance, like that knowledge of the statement, uh, the desire to follow that statement, uh, love of that statement, acceptance of whoever calls you that statement. I mean, these are all implied in that. And that's why they're in the heart iman. Because had there not been heart in the heart iman, even though there's little iman, one would not have found love of the statement, one would have not found compliance to the statement, one would have not found acceptance to the statement, one would have not found knowledge of the statement, one would have not found certainty of the statement, the other stipulations of Allah. Yes, brother. Uh, that's a good question so I mean the brother is asking that when the Prophet said we're talking about hadith which is mentioned in paragraph 60 I mean does it also include those Muslims who, are, who only pray on occasion like just Jum'ah or Eid or does it include um, Muslims who do not fast or do not um, you know give their zakah or not well previously we had discussed that Iman was 70 odd branches. Okay. So Iman is like a tree. And that tree has roots in the heart. Those roots are to believe in Allah, believe in the angels, believe in the scriptures, believe in the messengers, believe in the last day, believe in Qadr. And also certain actions are also part of those roots like love of Allah uh, hope in Allah's mercy uh, you know fear of Allah at least in, some, in the basic sense those are parts of the roots okay and then you have the branches that come out alright now when the branches are complete the tree is complete and the iman is complete if you take off a branch if the tree is still there then the person still has iman so, for instance, if one of the branches of Iman is to remove something harmful from the road. So, if a believer walks by, in front of, let's say, in Muntada, and he sees a broken you know, bottle at the doorstep, and he picks it up, then he has that branch of Iman. But if he just passes by and doesn't pick it up, then that branch is gone from his heart. You know, he doesn't have that branch of Iman. Okay? But the tree is still there. He still has belief in Allah. He still has belief in the angels. He still has belief in the last day. So he's still, with, he's still a mu'min. Alright? He's not an, a kafir. Let us say that one of the branches of Iman is that you do not steal. Because stealing is 
a major sin and it negates iman. So when a person steals, as the Prophet said, لا يسرخ السارق حين يسرخ وهو مؤمن. That the thief does not steal while he is stealing and he is a mu'min. So therefore that branch is missing but the person still has iman in the general sense in the, in, the, in the absolute sense because it's still in his heart those matters. But let us say the person says I don't believe in the angels. Here he's now ripped the whole tree from his heart so he's become a kafir. Alright. Now let's come to specifically the examples you mentioned. Alright. If you want to just understand in general. Now let's come specifically to the examples you mentioned. What about fasting? Does a person who does not fast, the fast of Allah, is it that he has lost a branch of faith in the same way as a person who walks by something and sees something on the road which is broken and harmful and doesn't remove it or a person who commits a major sin like steals for instance or is him or is that individual by not fasting the month of Ramadan has plucked the whole tree of Iman out of his heart and so therefore he's become a kafir that, that's the question so fasting is one of those actions because it's one of the pillars of Islam that even though most of the scholars do not consider by leaving the fast of Ramadan having caused you to lose Iman totally in the heart it's one of those actions which has just brought you to the edge you see what I'm saying brought you to the edge in the sense that you know the scholars used to say that those people who do not fast of Ramadan we fear that they have you know, lost all their Iman in their heart I mean, they weren't willing to actually say that, but they, they, they fear that they've reached that, that point. And, however, when it comes to the prayer, the person who forsakes, the, abandons the prayer, the understanding of the Prophet's companions, or Ijma' was the one who abandons the prayer, has lost any iman in his heart. But what happens about the, prayer who pray, the person who prays on occasion? As the example you gave. So he hasn't abandoned the prayer in totality, nor does he pray always, as he's required to, but he prays sometimes, you know. Well, this person is also on the edge. You know, he's in one of those situations where he has, you know, one foot in and one foot out. I mean, you don't know, you know, where he is. I mean, he's put himself in this type of danger, where he's almost lost all his iman. Yes? Right. Yes, I mean, you know, a person, you know, could fall under that ayah. <coughs> Even though the ayah was specifically regarding, you know, those people who were, I mean, you know, sort of clear in their hypocrisy. I mean, they said we're Muslim, and then tomorrow they don't say, no, we're not Muslims, and today we said we're I mean, that's more what the ayah is referring to. <coughs> Yes. Sure. Oh, so many questions, brothers. Okay. Is it related to this particular point? If you make it quick, please, because. As an extension of that, what's the, what's the correct statement then that actions are conditions and completeness of Islam, or that some actions are conditions? All right. 
No. Yes, you do hear different things. The statement that actions are a stipulation for iman in, in general is, is correct, is the correct statement. Because there are certain actions, at least certain actions are a stipulation for iman. In the sense that certain actions, if you do not have them, do not possess them, then you're not, you have no iman. Like prayer. Now, to say that actions are a, uh, are a stipulation for the completeness of iman is, n- is not correct in a total sense, an absolute sense, because prayer, you know, is, is so forth. But, I mean, in terms of in general, actions are what completes iman, because iman is rooted in the heart, in, in general. So, you know, so the truth is, is in neither of those statements in the absolute sense of either of those statements, but that certain actions are a stipulation of iman. An apostate is to be executed if does not believe. But what if he says that Allah has given him to uh, the choice to believe and quotes there is no compulsion in religion? Right. Right. Well, I mean, the la ikraha fiddin is applicable to the non-Muslim. There is no compulsion in religion. In other words, no non-Muslim can be compelled to enter into Islam. And if a non-Muslim is compelled, let's say some Muslims, you know, compelled a non-Muslim to enter into Islam by, by threat of death, okay, and then that non-Muslim, you know, says, you know, five years later, look, I only became a Muslim because I was given the choice between that or being killed, then, you know, no one would, would harm him. No one would say, okay, go back and be whatever you want to be, if you were compelled to that. But, you know, a person who's born a Muslim then wants to leave the faith, he's not given that choice. And you know, part of part of that is that it's it's not that because the issue of iman and kufr is something serious. I mean, it's not something to be played with. Otherwise, you know, if the issue was left that people could enter and leave the faith as they want, right? Then I mean, you know, you would find the situation as what happened during the time of the Prophet where the Jews would become Muslims in the morning, and then by afternoon. At sunset, they would leave Islam, and they would say, "Oh, you see, the pagan Arabs." They say, "Oh, well, we were people of the Scripture, you know." And we, we, he said he was a prophet. We came to follow him. We found that all that matters just, it's just all trickery and so forth. So, you know, in order to to stop people from coming to make Islam, so then people would say, "Well, yeah, but these people they had because the Arabs were pagans, they had no Scripture." Oh, you see, these people they have a Scripture. They became they became Muslims, and they found out that this is not the way of 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 the divine, you know, of the prophets and so forth. And so they know better, so we best we shouldn't follow him. So that's you know, it's in order to stop that. That's one of the reasons. And there are other reasons, but that's you know. Okay, Could you please clarify the meaning of ihsan? Yes, uh, briefly it's difficult, but Ihsan uh, in the Arabic language means to perfect, to do something to the utmost, to do something in the best way. That's what Ihsan means. And Ihsan is twofold. Ihsan unto Allah, which as the Prophet ﷺ said, uh, to worship Allah as if you see Him, for if you do not see Allah, He sees you. And then there's Ihsan toward the creation. And that is uh, for a Muslim, and with respect to the Muslim, is to love for your Muslim brother what you love for yourself. 
and for the non-Muslim, or for just the creation general animals and plants and so forth, is just to do good. I mean, not to harm. I mean, you know, our religion, if somebody was to ask you what is the religion of Islam based upon, it's based upon those two principles. Ihsan to Allah and Ihsan, Ihsan toward Allah and Ihsan to the creation. That we, you know, we perfect our worship towards Allah and we, uh, we show kindness and we show good to the creation. Uh, sometimes kindness and good requires that you are, you know, harsh in, in behavior, right? I mean, I mean, for instance, a father, when he wants to um, um, raise his children, if his children are, you know, acting up and so forth, right? He might have to be stern with them, right? He might have to raise his voice. He might have to sometimes, you know, sl- slap the child, right, the, on the backside just to, you know, straighten. So sometimes it requires, I mean, you know, being good doesn't necessarily mean, it's not like the, how the Christians, at least how they like to portray themselves, that, you know, being good means that you, if you're, you know, slapped on, in one cheek, you turn, give the other cheek. And if somebody takes your coat, you, you know, give them your shirt. I mean, that's, you know, they, like, they like to portray themselves that that's what Ihsan is. I mean, but that, that doesn't necessarily mean what Ihsan to the creation is. I mean, sometimes Ihsan to the creation is that you have to stop the criminal. Right? I mean, I mean if, if you're living in a neighborhood, and there was a, a person who was victimizing all the people in the neighborhood, and all the people in the neighborhood was weak, and you were the only person who was strong. I mean, you're a strong young man and so forth, right? And, and you're the only one who can stop this person from victimizing all the elderly people and all the women and all the children in the neighborhood, right? And you stood up to him and, you know, you stopped him, right? That's ihsan towards the creation. Even though your action, you know what I'm saying, towards that specific evildoer, you know what I'm saying, was that you weren't gentle with him, you might have been harsh to him, you might have to beat him, you might have to do whatever, but you've done ihsan toward the creation. Because, so, I mean, but the point is, is that our religion is based upon those two principles, ihsan toward Allah by perfecting our worship to Allah, and ihsan toward the creation by being good to the creation in its totality. I mean, believer and non-believer, uh, even the plants and the animals, I mean, we, we show. That's why, the, the as the Prophet said in another hadith, that when a person seeks knowledge, right, even the fish in the sea seek forgiveness for that person who seeks knowledge. Why? Because the person who seeks knowledge and learns knowledge will then learn what is the correct behavior and etiquette that he should show to the animals. And so therefore the animals, right, will not be then uh, terrorized by a human being who is who will, who will do evil towards them because the human being will then know that how he's supposed to act towards the animals and so the animals are feel at, at ease because they'll know that for instance he won't just like you know go hunting just for the sake of hunting you know what I'm saying uh, you know, or use an animal for target practice uh, he won't uh, uh, just like you know burn down forests just for the sake of you know burning down forests uh, yeah, and so forth question from sisters <coughs> if someone is known to drink alcohol doesn't pray regularly and mock the Muslims. Is it safe to assume he is a kafir and not to trust and love that person? How are we to act with the, such people who claim to be weak? Well, if a person drinks alcohol, he, he obviously has lost one of those branches of Iman. But the act of drinking alcohol in and of itself has not rooted out the iman in his heart. But drinking alcohol can lead to that. Because, for instance, if he drinks alcohol and so therefore he's continuously drunk, so he never prays, then he can fall, fall out of the fold of Islam. Um, now, if he doesn't pray, 
I mean, the sister he says doesn't pray regularly. So, I mean, it's one thing he does not pray at all, and it's one thing that he prays on occasion. So, if he prays on occasion, as I said, he's on that borderline, you know. But if he doesn't pray at all, he does not bow to Allah at all, then he's an unbeliever. Uh, if he mocks the Muslims, depends what you mean here by mocking the Muslims. If he's mocking the Muslims because of their Islam, if he, if he mocks the Muslims uh, because of their Islam, then he can become an unbeliever. You know, But if he mocks the Muslims because of some personal attributes, you know what I'm saying? Like, let's say there's um, a Muslim who's very tall or very short. So he makes fun of that Muslim due to his height or, you know, lack of height, right? So here he's not making fun of that person because of his Islam. He's making fun of that person due to his physical characteristics. Alright? So here he wouldn't become an unbeliever. He's committed a major sin by doing that. But if he mocks a Muslim where he mocks him because he says, well, I'm mocking that person because he prays and because he fasts and because he does good deeds and he avoids major sins, and that's what he's mocking, you know. Like, oh, how, how backwards that person is. He's always going to the mosque to pray. And this becomes unbelief. So, but in, in general, in general, I mean, as I mentioned before, we, we don't want to enter into the, um, enter into the subject of calling people believers and unbelievers. You know, Muslims or kuffar or righteous, or impious, or people of Sunnah, people of Bid'ah. Because unless you have, unless you're well grounded in the Sharia, you know, if you you could give a false, uh, and then it results in a lot of evil coming from that. I mean, one of the things that the Prophet said, whoever says to his brother, O Kafir, or you know, O an enemy of Allah, it will return back on one of them. So, yes. In, in the sense that I mean, you if if. Well, I mean, there's two. I mean, explanations. One explanation is that, in the sense that, if you called him a an unbeliever, um, because then, and he's not an unbeliever, right? Then, what understanding is is that, you know, if you call him an unbeliever, so because of his, you know, of his practice, okay, which means that you're rejecting it. So it means you're rejecting what in reality is iman. So in that sense, you become an unbeliever. That's one. That's one explanation. Okay, which is which is weak. The other explanation, which is which is stronger, is that this is a statement which the Prophet ﷺ said in order to um, uh, what's that? He said, he said uh, uh, yeah. I mean, in order to um, I'm trying to think of the word in English, but uh, in order to sort of uh, uh, you know. Um, yeah, for the, yeah, the heaviness of the statement in order to, to prevent people from falling into that. Okay, in, in that sense. Yeah. That he's done an act which is... No, not, not, not in that sense. Not, not, not necessarily that type of seriousness, but more, more in the sense of that, you know, in order to... Um, make people refrain from saying this you know what I'm saying the seriousness of that and it's going to fall back on one of you so you know it's in order to hold back people and that's perhaps what's the strongest explanation uh, a statement that sister asked about and same thing uh, brother asked someone has told me uh, that iman doesn't increase or decrease but taqwa increases or decreases 
And brother asks whether this statement being said by Imam Abu Haifa. Well, you see, <coughs> I mean, whether Abu Hanifa said so or not, I mean, you know, I don't want to delve into that. I mean, yes, Abu Hanifa, this has been reported upon Abu Hanifa. I mean, just for the short answer, but that shouldn't be that shouldn't be the matter. I mean, you know, Abu Hanifa and some other scholars, um, early scholars. You know, said that they didn't say that iman increased or decreased, but you know, they they considered to that other aspects of religion or taqwa increased or decreased. So between them and the majority of the scholars is a difference in wording, but not a difference in concept, not a difference in meaning. Okay. Um, so since there's a difference in wording, it, it doesn't really behoove us in this introductory course to, to really delve into. But we should stick to the wording of the Qur'an, Allah in the Qur'an says, and I gave two examples here, one from Surah Tawbah and one from Surah Al-Fatih, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, these dadu imanan ma'imanihim, that they're, you know, that, that they may increase in iman. This is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, with their iman. So now to say that iman does not increase, I mean, this is, this is difficult. I mean, you know, I mean, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that, that so that they may, these dadu imanan, that their iman may increase, with their uh, iman, and so that's you know very you know was adatum iman and it increased them in iman. So I mean to to stick to the words of the of the Sharia is 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 required. The wording uh, of the Sharia. Similarly between two questions, sisters, brothers, uh, uh, how can uh, we increase our iman? And the brother asks, please give uh, any, an example or example of ways to please Allah. Nah. So, I mean, this is, I, I appreciate from the sister, this is uh, the best question we had thus far. How can we increase our Iman? Um, well, increasing our Iman is, is done in a, in a number of ways, but uh, I'm going to mention just, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to mention all eight, if I can remember all eight, but we'll see how many I can get. Um, the, the first way is to uh, know Allah's names and attributes. Okay? The Prophet Sallallahu said that, you know, belonging unto Allah are 99 names, من أحصاها دخل الجنة. That belonging unto Allah are 99 names, he who encompasses them will enter into paradise. So encompassing uh, those names would mean to know Allah's names, to memorize them, and to worship Allah through them. So what do I mean by worshiping Allah through them? Like when you know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is as-samir, the all-hearing. So you then, to worship Allah through this name is then you make sure that you never say anything unless it's pleasing to Allah. When you know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-khabir, the one who knows the inner, you know, the inner nature of things, the, the, hidden, the hidden aspects of things, then you make sure that what's in your what you harbor in your heart is only good. So you do not face, even though you might face a Muslim outwardly smiling, but in your heart you have enmity to him. Well, Allah knows that. So you see, you, if you worship Allah through His name Al Khabir, then you make sure that your inside is, is 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 clean and pure. Okay, and so forth with all of Allah's names. You know that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is a Tawab, the one who, when His servant turns to Him in repentance, He you know, turns back to his servants. So then you continuously repent unto Allah. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-ghafoor, the one who 
you know, forgives. So you turn to Allah in forgiveness, asking, seeking His forgiveness. Uh, now, so that's the first principle. This, the second way is to contemplate upon Allah's book. I mean, to contemplate upon the Quran. And one of the best ways to do that is that when one reads an ayah in the Quran, one places himself in the position of the addressee. So for instance, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses the believers, Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu, O you who believe, right? Obviously, you place yourself in that position. I mean, you should, at least you should be. I mean, naturally, right? But likewise, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses, you know, the people of paradise, one thinks, oh, am I, or he talks about the qualities of people of paradise, one, you know, puts himself in that position, am I among those who have those qualities or not? When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the people of the hellfire or addresses the people of the hellfire, one places himself in their position as if the address is coming to him and says, oh, am I among those who this address will be applied to? Do I have these characteristics? Um, when, when one reads the stories of the prophets in the Quran, like Musa and Fir'aun, or Nuh and his people, you know, one puts himself in the position that if I was there at that time and I was witnessing it and watching those events, where would I have been? Would I be with the believers or would I be with the unbelievers? So that, that's what increases you, you know, in, in Iman, by, by contemplating the Qur'an and by putting yourself in the possession, position of the one who's being addressed. Uh, the third matter which increases you in Iman is to uh, follow the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Uh, you know, and following the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, especially in terms of those matters which deal with one's behavior, the outer behavior, the etiquette, the adab, the akhlaq. You know, it's very important that a Muslim has in his household a book of hadith which he uses as, you know, a basis to mold his life. Uh, you find a lot of times brothers and sisters, you know, in their homes, they buy, they have a copy of Bukhari all nine volumes and they have a copy of Sahih Muslim four volumes they have a copy of Abu Dawood three volumes and they have a copy of Imam Malik one volume whatever I don't know what else is being translated into English these days but they have all these books of the Hadith in their home but yet they don't you know read them or benefit them and that really goes away against the way of the earliest Muslims I mean Abu Dawood when he wrote his letter to the people of Mecca explaining why he compiled a Sunan his, his book a Sunan which has about 4,900 hadith in it, or, or so. He said, I put in each chapter two or three hadith, under each heading. Because if a person was to, you know, act upon those just one or two hadith regarding each topic I mentioned, that would suffice him for his lifetime. And, you know, it used to be said, women would say that when, when they would get married, that, and they would, like, move from the household of their parents to the household of their husband or spouse, right? That it would be sufficient for a woman that when she's preparing to move from the household of her parents, of her father, to the household of her new husband, that she takes with her a copy of the Qur'an and a copy of Sunan Abi Dawood. 
that's sufficient for her for the rest of her life. So, you know, I mean, I, that's that's practical, being practical and realistic about a Muslim. That's being a person who truly wants to strive to follow the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You know, you have a copy of Hadith in your house. I mean, it doesn't matter which Hadith book you have, whether it's Bukhari, whether it's you know Muslim, whether it's Abu Dawood. I have a personal preference for Abu Dawood because I think it was written for that aim. You know, even though it has some weak Hadith in it, but it still was written for that aim. And I think so. Therefore, people would be a little bit easier for them to you know deal with it and use it. Or Mutla Imamatik, because it's also is short, only one volume. Well, Bukhari is basically a book of fiqh, and it's for people to derive legal rulings and so forth. And Muslim is a book for hadith studies because it's a chain of narrations and so forth. It's done in a certain style. But anyway, I mean, it doesn't matter what book you have in your household. The point is is that you, you know, continuously read that book. So when you come across certain practices that the Prophet used to do upon waking, upon going to sleep, upon, you know, upon during the day and so forth, you start molding your life according to that, okay? I mean, in a short period of time, you will find that your behavior and your, and your conduct will have come in agreement with the Prophet Wasallam. And that's, and that's being practical. That's, that's acting really. And that will increase your iman, okay? The fourth matter which will increase your iman is knowing the, what is known as the mahasan of Islam. The, the, uh, the mahasan of Islam uh, means those good qualities of Islam. And that's something which I don't know how it can uh, be easily found in the English language. I mean, that's something which is probably missing. Maybe one day we'll, you know, have an opportunity to give a lecture on that. But, but it, it's like to know. Well, maybe there's a book by Bilal Phillips called the, "The Best of Islam" or something like that. Yeah. Maybe, so I don't know if that if that covers it. Or, but anyway, the point is, is that what are the unique qualities of Islam that makes Islam, you know, a distinct? Because when you know the goodness of something, you'll increase in your love to it, and you'll increase in your adherence to it. So, you know, what is the, that's the mahasan of Islam? I mean, my friends, one of the mahasan of Islam, uh, to give you an example, is that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has said. وَلَكُمْ فِي الْقِصَاصِ حَيَاتٌ يَا أُولِي الْأَلْبَابِ That you have in Al-Qisas the, the law of retaliation. You know, that, you know, that if somebody murders somebody that you, uh, you know, would execute him. Life, O men of understanding. Okay, how, how is that? I mean, how, how is it that if you execute somebody for murder, how does that have life? How does that bring life? Well, this is one of, this is one of the, the beauties of Islam. The fact that, you know, if a situation occurred where... Um, no qisas was applied. No, you know, if the murderer would go without being, you know, having the fear of being punished for, for murdering his, um, uh, for committing his murder, then you will have what you do like you have now, now in the United States, where, you know, I mean, it's rampant murder is rampant, and the murderer, you know, really has no fear of, of having any retribution to him. I mean, if he is get caught, I mean, you know, five, ten years, and, you know, he might be out if it's his first murder, you know. And maybe after a second or third murder, then he might be see life. But you know, I mean, in, in general, I mean, that's that's the, the the presumption, you know. Now, so so what happens is usually people who commit you know crimes commit a number of crimes, and so you know by stopping it once, you know, I'm saying you have you've you've saved really the lives of eight or nine other people that he would have eventually killed. So that that's the life. But yet at the same time, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has allowed us that with the murderer, that if the family of the murdered wants to forgive the murderer, okay, or do not want to execute him and take some sort of 
blood wits from him, right? They can do that. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us three choices. That the family of the murdered can, can ask for the murderers to be executed. They can ask for a blood wit to be paid, a dia, you know, uh, some sort of re- recompensation. Or they can forgive the murderer if they, if they choose. So you see, this is some of the, something about the beauty of Islam. I mean, it allows for all that, so it applies for any type of circumstance. So that, you know, I mean, so if the murder occurred, you know, where somebody murdered somebody, not out of evil, but let's say it was out of rage, and the family wants to forgive, they can forgive. If they want to ask for a bloodwood, they want to ask for a bloodwood. If they want to, you know, execute the murderer because he was an evil person, they, and they feel this is, this is how the retribution will occur, then they can go ahead and do that, okay? Uh, another example of, of, of the beauty of Islam, that, for instance, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said, you know, وَعْتَزِلُ النِّسَاءِ فِي الْمَحِيلِ That when a woman is, is on her menses, to separate from her, okay? The Jews, during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, when a woman would be in her menses, they would neither sit with her, they would neither eat with her, or they would not drink with her. And, and, that's, and that's how the Orthodox Jews still practice. That, you know, when a woman's in her menses, she's completely considered to be, you know, ostracized, and in the household, she's not, you know, in no contact with her whatsoever. The Christians, on the other hand, you know, find nothing forbidden for them to do when a woman is on her menses. And yet in Islam, you know, I mean, we have, this is from the beauty of Islam, that we are not allowed to, you know, have relations with our wives when they're upon that state. But yet we still, I mean, live with our lives, uh, with our wives in a complete sense. I mean, we eat, we drink, we go together and so forth. I mean, so, you know, this is, uh, again, from the beauty of Islam. All right? Um, you know, so, I mean, there, there are many examples, I mean, of this. I mean, so, to, to know this is what increases into Iman. Okay? So, I guess we've taken four matters. Uh, the fifth matter is uh, to do uh, the voluntary acts. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in a hadith al-Qudsi, in one hadith Qudsi says, the Prophet said that Allah said that, you know, my servant uh, does not do something which I love more than that which I've required of him. And he continues to draw closer to me uh, with, by doing the voluntary acts until I love him. Okay? So to know the voluntary acts is uh, something which is important. I mean, one thing which I do with the... Uh, brothers who I sit with in Washington, D.C., is uh, I make them do projects. So you guys are lucky you only have uh, two days of me. I no way for me to grade any homework. So, But uh, well, one of the projects I give them is, like, for instance, I, I ask them, and this is something which you should do for yourselves, I mean, on your own, you know, and if you want to send it to me, I can maybe grade it if I have some time, but we'll see. Um, what is the routine of, of, of the day of, day of the Muslim? I mean, if somebody could, you know, you should sit down and say, and sit down and think, okay, how does how does a day of the Muslim begin? Okay, you get up in the morning, and then what happens? You know, all right, right. But I mean, how do you phrase a lot? I mean, what are the du'as that you're supposed to say? You know, well, you're supposed to wash your hands before you make wudu, for instance. Uh, you're supposed to, you know, pray. What are the different things? You know, what happens at you know, at Fajr time, what happens after Fajr time, what happens at sunrise, what happens at mid-morning, what happens at Zuhr time, what happens in the afternoon, what happens at Asr time, what happens at Maghrib, what happens at Isha time, what happens after Isha time. This is the whole day of a Muslim, you know what I'm saying? You know, all the different, not just the required acts, but all the voluntary acts that a person can engage. And then there are weekly acts of worship. And what happens on a Monday, what happens on a Thursday? Let me see. What happens on a Friday? This is, which is different, okay? 
Then there are monthly acts of worship. What happens during the three days when the moon is full, for instance? Or what happens like tomorrow is the uh, 10th of Muharram, you know what I'm saying? What happens like that? And there are sometimes yearly acts of worship, like what happens during the month of Ramadan. There's also sometimes life worship that does, you know, once in the life, like the Hajj and so forth. So, you know, to, to be able to know, you know, what is, does it mean to be a Muslim in terms of the daily, the weekly, the monthly, and the, the yearly, and the life acts of worship, I mean, this is something which would increase one's faith. The other matter which increases one's faith, and I'll close with this, is to contemplate upon Allah's creation. I mean, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, mentions in his Quran that, you know, in these matters are ayat, signs, you know, for those who contemplate, okay? So, to contemplate upon Allah's creation is something very important. I mean, a Muslim should take, you know, some portion, and this is, you know, of the day or of the weekend, the week. Shalom, investigate the origin of so, you know, that a Muslim would contemplate, you know, what is the responsibility uh, in terms of reflecting upon these signs of Allah. By reflecting upon these signs of Allah, you know, one will increase in faith. You know, he, he sees Allah's power and sees Allah's wisdom in the creation, he sees Allah's mercy he sees Allah's beauty in the creation and so forth, which are all reflections of the creator himself so that, that's something also to contemplate upon and to, to think of Jazakumullah khair I think uh, with this uh, incident, with this mishap <laughs> we'll have to bring this lecture to an end Jazakumullah khairan سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك أشهد أن لا إله إلا أنت أستغفرك وأتوب إليك Brother, it's a bit difficult to hear you with this alarm going on Brother, shall we do a fire drill and let's practice going through this door? Right, so. Jazakumullah for cooperating. Sisters as well, they may go to Towards the exit door, just in case the, the situation has been investigated at the moment, whether this is a false alarm or not. Do not, do not run or anything, please. Do not make a situation like this uh, of panic. Please do not panic. Well, the alarm been stopped, so inshallah I take it there is nothing wrong. Okay? Look at the lazy brothers, look. Most of them still inside this hall. <laughs> oh, this is too cold, brothers. Too cold. <laughs>
some announcements as you departing this hall and for the sisters uh, in their halls as well regarding uh, meals uh, I mean they are still uh, available inshallah because uh, it seems that many people do not un- did not understand the announcements which we made yesterday so in any case we will be having meals as scheduled on the timetable if you uh, require a meal then uh, there is no problem just purchase the vouchers from the brother at the reception and in the case of the sisters from the organizing committee uh, may I mention as well the, with regard to the uh, allocated time for sisters to visit the bookshop could you please adhere to these times and uh, to make things run smoothly when the sisters visiting the bookshop we would like to avoid sisters visiting the bookshop at the same time as the brothers so please there is a timetable on the doors of the bookshop as well as on the notice boards of the sisters hall please adhere to these times finally you have 10 minutes to come back inshallah for the next lecture tea and coffee break is in uh, force at this moment inshallah the next lecture is scheduled to start in 10 minutes from now inshallah Yes, my brother. Um, one is about um, ring with the Yes. Is it more uh, yeah, like yeah. It seems to be that way, yes. Yeah, so but to wear a ring out of um, resembling the Prophet, in fact, the Prophet used to wear, wear, wear a ring. Mm-hmm. So if one wears a ring for that sense, you know, without intention, then there's no harm. Was there a purpose for him wearing it? Yeah, he used it as a signet ring. He used to stamp mm-hmm. letters with mm-hmm. it. Excuse me? Mm-hmm. No, uh, no. It's just because when he um, would send letters to people, to, to, uh, to yeah, seal with a seal, right? And um, uh, your feet facing um, Kibla. Yes. Is there any. Um, there, there's no direct prohibition, but some scholars feel that it's from uh, honoring the Qibla, that, you know what I'm saying, that one would not stick his feet towards it, so. I would think that if, among, if one is amongst the people who who find that offensive, then one should, you know, not do that. There's nothing in the Sharia I would specifically, yeah, yes. Mm, no. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Al-Hamid and you know part of, of, of Allah being Al-Hamid is that you know Al-Hamid means one who's not just the one that we praise but the one who is who praises himself who praises himself you know I mean for Allah's perfection to be manifested there needs to be a creation which 
you know, does get to do these acts of worship and so forth. Otherwise, otherwise his perfection is, is, is not manifested, you see. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I mean, part of his perfection, you know what I'm saying, part of his perfection is that, you know, he creates a creation, you know what I'm saying? Because if, if he doesn't create a creation, then, then his, his attribute of being al-khalaq is not shown. If he doesn't create a creation and reward them, his, then his, you know, that his, his attribute of being a shakur is not shown. If he doesn't create a creation and, and, and punishes them, then his attribute of being shadid al-iqab is not shown. And he's al-hamid. I mean, he praises himself, Azza And he wants the praise of him to come forth. So that's, that's why all this is about. You see what I'm saying? So the, prob- the, problem with, with the problem with these people is that they see themselves as the, the center. And for them to have the notion of them being Allah's slave, being created by Allah, and then, and then being the slave of Allah. You see what I'm saying? Which is what you were pointing to when you said, you know, that's too much for them. Because they, they see themselves in, you know, as the center and as everything revolves around them. You know what I'm saying? Problem is, is again, is that you know that we're you know we're God's servants, and that you know that because Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, you know, causes something to occur to us in terms of harmful, doesn't necessarily mean that 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 I mean that he's that it's going to be bad for us. It could be good for us. In other words, you see what I'm saying? In other words, that if a person was healthy and not ever sick, right? He would not necessarily reflect upon death. And he would ne- not necessarily feel himself, you know, in need of a life, which I, you, know, you know what I'm saying? And so, so then he would become arrogant, he would refuse to submit. But sometimes when a person is broken, you know what I'm saying, then he humbles himself and realizes that his life is in Allah's hand. And so that he becomes grateful for what I mean. Well, I, I think I mean I think the way to approach it is that the question to say I mean to the thing acknowledge do they believe that there is a god or first or not. And I don't think you'll find somebody who really believes that he's an atheist. I mean, I can't imagine you find somebody who really, in the end, is an atheist. Okay. All right. So, so then, so then, it, then if we if we accept that there's a God, then you know, wh- what is the characteristics of God? And He will have to come to the the, the recognition, right? That if you look at the universe around you, that this God is obviously powerful, wise, nothing is, you know, without a wisdom and so forth. All knowledgeable, merciful, gentle, 
and so so when something occurs outside of that you know when it comes from punishment like some sort of illness or something like that some sort of test right then there must be a wisdom behind it there must be something which a person should you know investigate into and so forth it might not be it might not appear to him as it necessarily appears I give an example which is really I'm not convinced about this point in the, in the first place. You know what I'm saying this, this needs some sort of, you know, contemplation. I mean, concerning that, you know, I mean, is is it the the remainder of of the hadith of the bone? You know what I'm saying? Is this is this similar to, to the the notion of you know genetic cloning and so forth? In the sense that that in the same sense that they you know when you take the DNA and you clone because from it.
No, I mean, I think, I think, I think, I think that you know that I mean it needs some contemplation. You know what I'm saying? I, I see where you. I mean, I understand what you're trying to say. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's not foreign to me, but I mean, I just it needs some sort of contemplation before we see this analogy works or not. But in general, I mean, I mean, I think the the examples given about embryology and so forth. Yes, I mean, that's, that's, that's very clear. It's, it's pretty much agreed upon by the Muslims, yeah. you know what I'm saying? And you could always use that. Anyway, uh, if you get in contact with Jafar Idris, Jafar Idris is very good. It's Sheikh Jafar Idris in the Washington, D.C. area. I don't know. I wish. I no, but but no, Jamal. I mean, but I'm saying for the questions about these questions, like why does Allah and so forth, these type yeah. of philosophical questions. Sheikh Jafar is a specialist in this. I mean, he's really Sheikh in the true sense of the word. I mean, well, not I mean, not Shab Muthaqat or any of that. So I'll I'll, tr- I'll try to. I mean, if you contact me when you come to Washington or something like that, I'll, I'll, I'll you let you meet Sheikh Jafar and you can ask him these questions and so on. Neither Allah or the Prophet has informed us of 
what that state is. We do know that he's been raised to the heavens. And so, you know, the state that he's in, right, is he aware of the passage of time? Is he asleep? Is he awake? You know, what's, we, we just don't know. You know, so, so we just... No, it's in a physical sense.